Okay, well, we are going to continue working through the book of Genesis this morning. And I know that the last couple of months there's been uh, a couple of different directions we've gone. The month of January we talked about our generous God, generous church building campaign. And then last week, unfortunately, we did not meet. Uh, So to help some of you catch up a little bit or review, we're going to quickly flip back a couple of chapters in Genesis and just review sort of the context of what has happened before, because that's going to be very important for what we're going to look at today in chapter 15. To start out with, remember with me, please, back to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12 is a very pivotal moment in the entire book of Genesis, because in Genesis 12, God calls Abram out of his, the land of his father and where he had grown up, out of his comfort and possessions, and says, go to the land that I will show you. And God basically promises Abram three things. He promises Abram and his wife Sarai that they are going to have seed, that they are going to have many, many descendants. And the word seed seems a little bit weird to use, but there's strong biblical uh, thematic uh, reasons for using that word. But by that we just mean that Abram is going to be the father of a multitude, the father of a nation. Secondly, the Lord promises Abram land. And we're going to look at that more uh, this morning. And then the third thing that the Lord promises Abram is that he is going to bless all nations of the earth through Abram and his descendants. And so Genesis chapter 12 is the start of what we call the Abrahamic covenant. And it's a little bit further elaborated in chapter 15, which we'll look at today, and chapter 17, and a little bit more during the life of Abram in the Bible. Secondly, and very importantly, in Genesis chapter 12, Abram goes to Egypt. And while he's there, he's concerned for his well-being because of the beauty of his wife and says, let's pass off that you're my, half, that you're my sister and not my wife. And she was probably his half-sister. So there's a little bit of truth there, but it didn't go very well for them in doing this. And she was recognized for her, her beauty, brought into Pharaoh's house. The Lord afflicted Pharaoh because of this. And ultimately, it was discovered that Sarai was Abram's wife. And so they left Egypt, uh, but they began prospering very greatly. And the Lord's blessing began to be seen on the life of Abram. In chapter 13, we start out and we see Abram is so blessed. He has such an abundance of blessing for himself and his nephew Lot that they actually need to part ways. Uh, They have so much cattle that there's not room enough for each of their herds to graze and their shepherds are fighting about it. And so Abram defers to Lot and lets Lot pick where he's going to go and Lot picks the land of, of Sodom, which reminded them more of Egypt. And Abram receives the land of Canaan, which goes right in with what the Lord had promised them. Then, Genesis 14, a lot starts happening. And last week, because we didn't meet for church, Pastor Ken did put together a devotional guide for chapter 14. And you can find that on the church's Facebook page. So I would encourage you to look at that and work through that. That can give you a lot more detail than we can quickly cover this morning. But I want to highlight four key components of chapter 4. The first one is that Lot is captured. There's this very dramatic battle that starts happening, and there's many kings that are warring against each other. And... Lot is captured in the midst of this battle. And one of the servants runs away. He's able to flee away. And he comes to Abram and he tells Abram what has happened to his nephew Lot. And so Abram goes on a rescue mission. 
and he rallies the men of his household, which is his servants, and all of these uh, men of age, and there's, I think, 318 of them all together, and they chase Lot's captors through the night, and they overtake them, and Abram is very successful in doing this, and they are able to get Lot back, all of the possessions, the women that were taken, everything is able to be restored. And then we have this very bizarre encounter with one of these kings, and his name is Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is both this king and a priest. And he is a priest of God Most High. He's a worshiper of God Most High. And so in this really weird turn of events, Abram ends up offering a tithe to Melchizedek, showing this honor to him. And Melchizedek pronounces a blessing on Abram, which if you remember what we just talked about in chapter 12, this idea of blessing uh, already is beginning to prove true within Genesis 14. In the end of chapter 14, verses 19 and 20, we see this blessing from Melchizedek. And Melchizedek says, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. <clears throat> that's going to be important, and we're going to see why in just a moment as we get into chapter 15. But the last part of chapter 14 that's very interesting is Abram rejects the spoils of war. He uh, is able, because of his role in uh, being victorious over these many kings, to claim a portion of the bounty, and he rejects that. And he says, I'm not going to let any of these other kings be able to say, I have made Abram rich. And he leans upon the Lord alone uh, to provide for him. So that kind of brings us to chapter 15. I know that was really quick, and you can listen to sermons online or other things to review that, go back and read it. But now I want us to get into chapter 15 and kind of just try to keep that context in the back of your mind. If you would look, at me, look with me at chapter 15, we're going to read verses 1 to 6 right now. Genesis 15, verses 1 to 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, then the Lord said to Abram, so shall your offspring be. And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. I want to highlight a couple of key things in these short six verses. The first one is that we see Abram is functioning in this prophetic role. It's very interesting, the phrase, the word of the Lord came to him, occurs twice in the whole book of Genesis, and both of them are right here in chapter 15. 
verses 1 and verse 4. And this is the exact language that's used to describe the prophet Samuel later on in the history of Israel in the book of 1 Samuel. And Abram's role as a prophet here in verses 1 to 6 very much anticipates what's coming in the second half of the chapter, which kind of mirrors 1 to 6 is verses 7 to 21. Abram's also affirmed as a prophet later in the book of Genesis in chapter 20. Abram has an encounter with um, Abimelech, and the Lord tells Abimelech, ask Abram to pray for you and you will live because he is a prophet. Uh, This is also affirmed in the Gospel of Luke. And so Abram is receiving a special word from the Lord at this instance. Then we see that God identifies himself in a unique and special way to Abram. He tells Abram, fear not, I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. And this is important for a couple of reasons, and one of them is just the context that we just covered of what has happened in chapter 14. Abram has some very good reasons to be a little bit fearful right now. In this battle of many kings, he was victorious, the Lord's blessing and hand was upon him, uh, but there's some powerful people that might not be too happy that Abram swooped in in the last minute and uh, defeated their military campaign. Then the Lord's self-identification as Abram's defender and deliverer, as Abram's shield, echoes very much the pronouncement that Melchizedek had just given to Abram in the end of chapter 14. Telling Abram, blessed be him by God most high who has delivered Abram's enemies from his hand. And then we're going to see sort of a mere component to this in the second half of the chapter, so keep that in the back of your mind as well. The next thing that we see is this this interesting figure, Eliezer of Damascus. And some of your Bibles might have translations just a little bit different, or you might have some interesting notes in the bottom of this. There's some peculiar uh, elements of translating uh, Eliezer of Damascus. But the point of this that needs to be highlighted is that Abram and Sarai remain childless. And in ancient Near Eastern culture, the culture of Abraham, this was a really big deal. As Abram and Sarai are getting older and older, they have no one who is going to care for them in their old age. No one who's going to continue to provide for them. And having an heir is very important, not just for considering who's going to inherit Abram's wealth as a very wealthy man, but also who's going to make sure that they are buried in an honorable way uh, and make sure that they are taken care of until their last day. And so Abram is looking to the Lord for reassurance of the promise the Lord has given him all the way back in chapter 12. And one option that was available to Abram and Sarai is that they could basically adopt this man, probably one of Abram's chief servants, as one of their children. And once he's adopted, he would be their legal heir, and he would have these responsibilities of caring for them in their old age and all of those other things. And so Abram is looking at the Lord's promise, and he's asking, is this the way that you're going to fulfill it? And Abram's asking very pointedly because the Lord has promised to be his reward. Remember what I said, Abram just rejected the spoils of war in chapter 14. And Abram's saying, what reward can I really have? I don't have anyone to pass it on to, except for this man who's not even related to me. 
And God is very clear in affirming to Abram that this is not God's chosen means of fulfilling his promises to Abram. And we're going to see in the coming weeks as, as we continue to work through Genesis that the Lord continues to further specify how he will take care of Abram and how he will be faithful to the word that he has given to Abram. Then God, in his goodness to Abram, gives him a sign to accompany what the Lord has said. And he says, go out and count the stars if you are able to. And I know you can't see super well. There's actually stars on this picture. Um, <laughs> as Abram looked at the night sky, he could see the abundance and the innumerable way in which God was going to bless him. And I imagine that every night as the sun set, Abram was able to look at the sky and be reminded. God has said that that is what he will do. And I know today we can count the stars and we can do some of those things. We have the technology to do it. But I suspect that for Abram, he probably didn't actually number them, but was overwhelmed by the innumerable nature of the stars. And then we see this very interesting little comment in verse 6. And he, Abram, believed the Lord. And he, the Lord, counted it to Abram as righteousness. Now, it's really hard for us to read that phrase and not get a little bit excited. And we should be excited. But we also need to try to make sure we understand what's happening here in Genesis 15. Because this comes back in the New Testament in many ways I don't think that Abram understood the details of what God was going to one day do through Christ. I think that in all of these ways, God was blessing Abram and doing things beyond that which Abram could have ever imagined or beyond what he ever could have dreamed would be possible. But I do believe that this is basically a foundation and a forerunner for the full realization of the righteousness that would come by Christ. And Abram does a good and God-honoring thing in believing the word of the Lord and trusting that God will do what he has said he will do. And the Lord counts that as a righteous deed by Abram. We'll get into that a little bit more later today. Now I want you to turn your attention to verses 7 to 21. And remember what I said, there's some kind of mirroring components in the second half of this chapter. So let's read that together now. Verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half, and when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain 
that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they, Abram's descendants, shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I will give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now I want to highlight a couple of things that we see here in this next section as well. The first one is this identification of the Lord. The Lord says, I am the Lord, in verse 7, who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Now, when I read that, how many of you, your initial thought was, I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Anybody remember that? That's a very important phrase in our Old Testament. It's, it's found in Exodus chapter 20, the beginning of the Ten Commandments that the Lord gives to Israel after they come out of Egypt. And this is very important. This is very covenantal language. And we're going to get into this covenant ceremony that Abram and the Lord perform. But one of the key initial components of a covenant ceremony is what we call a historical prologue. And the basic idea is that you have two kings. You have a great king and a lesser king. And the great king, the, the name is a suzerain, and the lesser king is called a vassal or a servant king. Uh, those names aren't terribly important to know, but if you like those random facts, there they are for you. What would happen in a covenant ceremony like this is the great king would recount who he is and what he has done to bless and help this lesser king. And so the Lord is recounting who he is and what he has done. It's a certain, basically a way of saying, remember, this is who I am. We have a previous relationship together that has brought us up to this point. And now something special is going to happen. This kind of mirrors what we saw in the beginning of verse 1, where God identified himself as Abram's shield and rewarder. Then we get into the beginning of preparing for this covenant ceremony. And we have other ancient documents that describe similar covenant ceremonies like this. And the basic idea, which is pretty simply portrayed here, is that these animals are taken and they're slaughtered and they're put in two, and they're separated from each other. And the idea is that these two covenanting parties would pass through these pieces. And the lesser king is basically swearing faithfulness to the great king. 
And in doing so, there's also covenant curses that would accompany that. That would accompany the breaking of loyalty or betrayal to this great king. And so what this looked like is what we call a royal land grant. And basically it would be one king is giving to another an area of land to be king over, sort of a servant king, and they would probably pay tribute to the great king and things like this. And so in Abram's mind, preparing these carcass pieces and then walking through them would signify that what has happened to these animals is what will happen to me if I fail to be faithful and loyal to the great king. As has happened to these animals, so shall it be done unto me. And so as Abram is preparing this, he probably was very familiar with this custom, and that is probably what he was expecting. But then the passage sort of stops. It stops progress in verse 12, and it's interrupted by this prophetic pronouncement from the Lord. And notice what happens to Abram in verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. This deep sleep is very reminiscent of what happened with Adam and Eve in, in early, I think, Genesis chapter 2, as God takes the rib from Adam to make Eve his helper and his wife. But Abram is, this is a prophetic section of the Old Testament, and Abram is, is asleep, but yet the Lord is also speaking to him. And exactly how that works, I don't know. But we know that the Lord is doing things to assure Abram at this time. He's giving a visual sign of assurance to Abram that the Lord will be faithful and will do what he has said he will do. And then the Lord gives this pronouncement. He says, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Now, we know from having the book of Exodus that this is talking about how Eventually, Abram will be blessed. He will have many descendants, and they will go to Egypt because of famine, just like Abram did in Genesis chapter 12. And that ultimately the Lord will deliver them from Egypt, and that he will judge the nation of Egypt, and that the Israelites will come out with great provisions and blessings from the people of Egypt as they're giving them silver and gold and saying, leave our land as quickly as possible. God is assuring Abram of this covenant. And this connects back with what we talked about at the beginning of Abram serving as a prophet here, receiving this prophetic pronouncement from the Lord. Then in verse 17, the covenant ritual resumes, except for that it doesn't happen in the way that Abram probably would have expected because as we know, Abram is in this deep sleep. And then he sees in verse 17, the sun had gone down and it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch passed between these pieces. The smoking fire pot and flaming torch, these are symbols that are used to describe the Lord very often in the Old Testament. We know that as Israel left Egypt, they're led by a, a pillar of smoke by day and a um, pillar of fire by night as they're let out. We also see smoke and fire on Mount Sinai and, um, as Israel is at the foot of the mountain and the Lord's presence is coming down upon the mountain. And so these two symbols, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, represent the Lord here. And 
the Lord alone passes through these pieces. Now, I can't tell you how much reading I did this week with people who disagree on what this actually means and what's actually happening here. And if you think about it, there's some theological problems with the Lord being the one who is functioning as like the great king, who would then be the one who's to enforce judgment if the covenant's broken, but then be enforcing it upon himself. It kind of leads to this redundant peculiarity. Um, But what is very clear and what is most important here, regardless of what this means for God himself, is that God is showing, I believe, Abram something that Abram would have recognized, and God is condescending to Abram. He's using something that is familiar to Abram's culture to very clearly show Abram, Abram is not the one passing through these pieces. Abram is not the one who is responsible to bring about God's fulfillment of his promises. This is very clear, regardless of the possible theological complications of what this covenant ceremony looked like. It is upon the Lord and the Lord alone, not upon Abram, to fulfill the promises of the Lord. There's a couple of brief things that I think are really important for us as we consider how to apply this passage. And normally, I'm a little bit nervous when we read an Old Testament passage and we just try to be an example and use them as an example and follow them. But I do believe that Abram here is able to function as a good example, not only for us, but also for Israel. Now, you need to remember the context of the book of Genesis, that Moses wrote the book of Genesis for Israel between the time of them leaving Egypt and entering the promised land. And so the Israelites, having left Egypt and having experienced this exact thing the Lord had prophesied to Abram, are the ones who are the original audience of the book of Genesis. And so they're probably gathered around listening to Moses read the inspired word of the Lord, and they're reminded that their exact experience of going to Egypt is not something that took the Lord by surprise. In fact, it was something that was prophesied hundreds of years before it actually happened. The Lord even knew the exact time that they would be there. And the reason for the Lord's timing was because of his graciousness to the other nations. Verse 16 points out that the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. The Lord was not ready to judge them for their, wicked and their wickedness and sinfulness, until such a time as it had reached a level that the Lord alone knows. Israel is able to look at their forefather Abram and see his faith that God was going to do what he said he will do and be reminded that they worship the same God. That they can look around at each other, a huge multitude, a nation of people, and remember that they came from a man who was childless. In their very presence, they could look around at their brothers and sisters and cousins and neighbors and other members of other tribes of Israel and see that God was already fulfilling his promises he had made to them. Abram is able also for us to be an example of what godly faith looks like. Even when there's no conceivable way of how the Lord is going to be able to do what he has said he will do. Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
I want to ask you to turn with me to Romans chapter 4 briefly. This passage is incredibly fascinating after having read Genesis 15. Romans chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 17 to 25. Paul's going to quote Genesis 15 a number of times directly here. Romans chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 17 through 25. The Apostle Paul writes, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, he's speaking of Abram, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And this is the second application of this. It is that Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the promises God made to Abram. Christ is that promised seed ultimately, and we see this in the genealogies in the New Testament of Abram, through whom God has blessed and is blessing all nations of the earth. Look around you. Most of us are Gentiles in northern Kent County, and if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you are being blessed and personally seeing part of the fulfillment of God's promises to Abram. If your faith has not been placed in Christ, I implore you to do that. And don't let another day go by. And if you have placed your faith in Christ, my hope is that you will be encouraged this morning. That as we encounter difficulties and trials, and we've had so many cases of loss happen in the last couple weeks in our church family, that as you encounter these difficulties, that you would remember and cling to who God is. Abram is, is exemplified as a wonderful model of what our faith should be like. But one of the most important things is who Abram placed his faith in. God who is faithful. God who sovereignly knew exactly the time that his descendants would be enslaved. God who knew he would deliver them. God who had a plan to continue to be further specified for how Abram's body, which was dead, would basically be raised to life. And Sarah's womb, which was dead, would be the source of life 
And through that life ultimately came the descendant, Jesus, of the line of Abram. Not only that, there's a very important part of this, which is considering the land that is promised to Abram. And in the Old Testament, the land of Israel, the promised land, is incredibly important. It's not incredibly important because it's necessarily the only piece of nice land that's around, although it is heralded as a land flowing with milk and honey and a land that is very bountiful. But one of the most important, probably the most important component of the promised land is who is there. It is there that God's presence is especially dwelling in the midst of his people. Remember how Israel was when they camped as they were in the wilderness. They camped in a circle around the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant symbolizing God's presence. And in the Old Testament, when someone left the land of promise, it was very important theologically because there was no way they could worship God in a way that is honoring and pleasing to him. But for us who have placed our faith in Christ, we have the Spirit of Christ the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, within our midst. And Christ is the mediator of a new covenant and a better covenant where the law of the Lord is no longer written on tablets of stone, but the law of the Lord is written on the hearts of men. In the fulfillment that Christ brings to these promises to Abram of seed, of land, and of blessing, we have a God who is incredibly worthy of our faith and trust, regardless of the difficulties of the circumstances that we are in, and regardless of our inability to conceive of a way that God is going to be able to show up and do what he said he will do. He is worthy of all of our praise and all of our trust as we seek to follow the example of Abram, who did not waver.